0: And I interviewed every sailor on the ship individually, all 310 of them had never been done before in the Navy. And it wasn't about business. It was getting to know them. Tell me about your family. I learned the names of every sailor, their spouse's name, their children's name, their hometown, their favorite football team. It enabled me to connect with them and get them to feel like I care about them. And, you know, if the people you're dealing with think you care about them, they will follow you into battle. And so only at the end of the interviews did business come up. You will tell me, what would
1: you like to improve about this ship? What do you hate most? Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you.
2: Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Ursini, and you guessed it, I'm your host again this week. Today, I'm really fortunate to have an amazing guest today, someone who I really had on my radar for the last six or seven months, and I'm so glad that he's on today, and that's Captain Mike Ebershoff. Captain Ebershoff is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and was a military assistant to the former Secretary of Defense, the Honorable William J. Perry. He left the Navy in 2001 and co-founded GLS Worldwide, a consulting agency that provides practical solutions on how leaders can achieve breakthrough results. At age 36, Mike Abrashoff was the most junior officer in the Pacific Fleet when he took command of the near worst performing ship. 12 months later, the USS Benfold was the best ship in the entire Navy using the same crew. The story of that stunning transformation has become legendary inside and outside of the Navy. Mike established a set of management principles that he calls the Leadership Roadmap. At the core of his leadership approach is a process of replacing command and control with commitment and cohesion. Mike is the author of three books. His first book is It's Your Ship Management Techniques from the Best Damn Ship in the Navy, has sold over 1 million copies and was a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that book. His next book, It's Our Ship, and the best title ever, Get Your Ship Together, showed how Mike's leadership principles have been put into action by business leaders and their own organizations everywhere. In addition, Mike is a highly sought-after keynote speaker for audiences looking to ramp up organizational performances. I heard him speak a few years ago at my company's conference, and I was just blown away, Mike, and you were one of the best keynote speakers I've ever heard. I also spoke at that conference, by the way, and after hearing you speak, my first thought in my head was, thank God I didn't have to follow him. So (laughs) thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. So there's so much I want to talk to you about. So I actually, the last few hours I've been spending here trying to get this down from three hours to, to one hour, because I'm such a fan of your book and I was such a fan of your speech. But before we jump into communication, leadership, and your book, I always like to start off letting my audience find out a little bit about who Mike is. And I'm such a student that we are where we come from. And so if you don't mind just telling us your, a little bit of your background, I understand that you come from a military background and, and how you, all the events that led up to your, your uh, command of the USS Penfold. Well, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, a place called Altoona. And there were
0: 10 of us living in our home growing up and we had one bathroom. Oh boy. And so when I got out of the Navy and was able to buy my first home, it has four bathrooms in it. And I visit every one every day just because I can. I love that. <laughs> so that's basically all you need to know about me. And number six is seven kids. And the best path to get an education for me was to go to the Naval Academy. And so graduated in '82 from the Naval Academy and then worked my way up, going from one progressively tougher job to the next culminating in uh, getting command of USS Benfold, which incidentally was named after somebody from the medical field. It was named after Edward C. Benfold, who was a medic in the Korean War. And one afternoon, he was tending to two wounded Marines in a foxhole when several enemy soldiers stormed the foxhole, throwing grenades into it. And at the age of 21, Edward Benfold decided he was going to become a leader. He picked up those grenades. He stormed the oncoming enemy soldiers, blowing them up. Blowing himself up, saving the lives of those two wounded Marines who I used to take to sea on his ship every six months or so. And in addition to naming a ship after him, he was also awarded the Medal of Honor. And I used to tell his crew, make sure Edward Benfold is smiling down upon us today. And I would also tell them, you never go wrong when you do the right thing. If you're doing the right thing, nobody's ever going to criticize you. Just if what you're doing appeared on the front page of the Washington Post tomorrow, would you be proud or embarrassed? And if you're embarrassed, don't do it. And if you're proud, I'll support you 100% of the time. And so from there, we got featured in the Harvard Business Review. And that was my big break. Literary agents started calling and said, you ought to write a book. And I didn't think I could do it at first. It was actually an easy process. I talked into a tape recorder every night and had the recordings transcribed. And lo and behold, the book came out in 2002. It's uh, sold over 1.1 million copies. And and a year ago this month, a business owner in Canada bought 11,000 copies for each
2: one of his employees. Smart move. I read the book. That's a smart move. That's high praise. (laughs) I do believe we are where we came from. and I do know Altoona, Pennsylvania only because they have a Penn State campus there, don't they? They do. (laughs) <laughs> and replying to Penn State, I went to Rutgers University, and no offense, they said you have to spend a couple of years in Altoona first before you go to the main campus. And I said, "No, I, I don't think so. I'm a big city boy from New Jersey, so that was the end of that." Of my parents' children left home at age seventeen
0: and never returned to Altoona, so <laughs> we think my mother should write a
2: book on parenting on how to get your kids to leave home. <laughs> That's yeah, my kids keep coming back, and now with COVID, my adult children are living with me down here in Florida again. I have two of the three of them work in New York City, so they're certainly back. Our experience really shaped who we are. And before you became, I read in your book, before you tapped into the Benfold, you had a couple setbacks, right? I mean, you weren't always at the top of your class. Everything that you did wasn't always successful. But what really came out about your book is that every time things didn't work out perfectly for you, you learned from your mistakes. So tell us about that. Well, it's true.
0: I graduated in the top 80% of my class at the Naval Academy. That's the name of my book. It's all in the delivery. And I love the way you said that top
2: 80%.
0: That's I never got all the best assignments starting out, but you play the hand that you're dealt and you make the most of it. And instead of complaining, I worked hard and learned my trade. And as I got more senior and senior, I would always watch the commanding officers that I worked for for the traits that I admired and wanted to emulate, but also for the traits that I abhorred and didn't want to fall into that same trap. So you can learn from both great leaders and poor leaders if you have the self-awareness to understand how you're showing up. So I've learned from both types of leaders and I've picked and chosen the traits that matter the most to me. And prior to getting command of the ship, I was selected to be the number two assistant to the secretary of defense. His name was William Perry. And it's interesting. He's the best leader I've ever worked for or seen in action. And it wasn't because he was charismatic. It's because he led with a sense of humility. And it really appealed to me. I would would eventually come to call his leadership style excellence without arrogance. And it didn't matter who you were. You could be a janitor in the halls of the Pentagon Or you could be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Every interaction with him, he made it seem like you were the most important person on the planet. And I would watch people and how they would respond to that. And they became more loyal and dedicated and committed to him. So, this concept of excellence without arrogance is something that I've tried to take with me and and emulate myself. And I believe my crew responded to it. And also, I believe the audiences that I've spoken to over the last. 20 years. Appreciate that humility as opposed to I'm a leadership expert. I know it all. I'm here to tell you what to do. No, it's a journey and you live and learn and you get better because none of us is a perfect leader and none of us is a born leader. So it's all about having the self-awareness to understand that yeah, we're pretty good, but we're not perfect. And life is a journey and we need to continue to
2: improve each and every day. I've always said when I give my lectures and we talk about we as a society often look at the people who fail and we give them a hard time who are not doing well and what we should be doing is is exactly what you talked about just now is we should be saying there's a person who has succeeded i want to figure out why William Perry succeeded to where he was what made him the best leader and if we spend more time watching the people who are good at what they do we can learn so much more from that, So that's a great point. The other point, I'll draw a parallel to what I do in medicine and, and teaching physicians how to build trust with their patients. And I talk about frequently in my book, being a genuine person. And by being a genuine person, you're building trust. And in many ways, the reason why I do this podcast is that physician to patient is kind of like a leadership role in that, we'll talk about it later, but trust is the most important thing when you're being a leader. And we know that when patients don't trust their physician, they are less likely to take their medications, they're less likely to follow up with their care, and they're more likely to sue or never come back. And so I think it's really important that you are a genuine person. And that seems to be what you're saying right now about Dr. Perry, right? So sometimes we perform the way we think the organization wants
0: us to perform. And there is always this, when you're a captain of a ship, this is what you need to do. You need to you know, tell people what to do. You need to be decisive, bark orders. And what you get is people who are performing the way they think others expect them to be instead of being their genuine self. And I give people the credit to know a fraud when they see one. And if you're trying to be somebody you're not, the people will see right through that. Be your
2: genuine and authentic self, as you say, and that's who people want to surround themselves with. It looks fake, right? So, and I tell physicians that all the time. If you walk into a room and there's a patient waiting for you and you say, you know, I teach them, let's talk about just for one minute, something that's not medical. Let's not walk in and immediately get down to business. Let's talk about the Yankees or what happened to me today or how are you doing? And I noticed in your book that you did that with your sailors a lot. Sometimes you you bent the rules, you did the movies and you did stuff for morale that made you really, they respected you. And sometimes I think that leaders think that if you're not rigid, you're not going to get respect. And I think it's the opposite way, isn't it? I
0: firmly believe it's the opposite way. And I interviewed every sailor on the ship individually, all 310 of them had never been done before in the Navy. And it wasn't about business. It was getting to know them. Tell me about your family. I learned the names of every sailor, their spouse's name, their children's name, their hometown, their favorite football team. It enabled me to connect with them and get them to feel like I care about them. And, you know, if the people you're dealing with think you care about them, they will follow you into battle. And so only at the end of the interviews did business come up. Tell me, what would you like to improve about this ship? What do you hate most? And so the first part was about establishing that connection and engagement and make them feel like you care about them. And only then would I talk about the business side of it. And by that time you have them, you know, and then they'll open up and they'll give you ideas, they'll start taking greater ownership, greater accountability. But I can't order that from the beginning of an interview. You've got to lay the groundwork. And we've now been in COVID crisis since last March. Everybody's doing online calls. Whenever I do any calls with any of my people, first, we talk about family, what's going on. And everybody in this country has been impacted. And to be honest, there are days when I'm depressed. Like, why even get out of bed this morning? And so if we're depressed because of this, it's only natural that the people we're dealing with may be down as well. They may have lost a loved one. They may have somebody who's hurting physically as a result of COVID. And so if you go right to business, you won't understand the personal drama that everybody in this country is going through right now. And by talking about it in advance, it gives you some context so that you can better design how you're going to communicate with them and connect with them. So it's all about the personal touch and caring. Now, be your genuine, authentic self. If you don't care, then don't ask. (laughs) Some people don't care. And, you know, if you try to act like you love them and you
2: don't, they're going to be suspicious of you.
0: But if you genuinely care,
2: take the time to talk to them about it. And it's also going to help you when you're trying to run that ship or that company. I'm a Rutgers University graduate. And the Rutgers University in the early '80s was very difficult from the athletic point of view. They were horrible in football. They're horrible in basketball. They were good in women's basketball. It's not much better now, but it is a little better. But my point is, in the '80s, I decided I needed to adopt another team just to root for. It. So I got very interested in Duke basketball, and I've become a big Coach K fan, Coach Ashevsky fan. I've read every one of his leadership books, and in his book, one of his books, he says he takes the incoming freshman. And they spend, I don't remember, a day or a weekend with him and his wife at the house one by one, and they get to know them. And through that, he learns, you know, what this kid can do, what he will respond to. Some kids respond to being yelled at. Some kids need more encouragement. In your book, you talk about put a round peg in a round hole. How much of that interview helps you with that? Oh, I'd say a 100%. By interviewing every sailor, oftentimes I
0: found out they knew what they didn't want to do, but they couldn't quite figure out what they did want to do. Hmm. And I have a feeling that's what Coach K does in that weekend with each kid. You have a choice between going down the wrong path or choosing the correct path. And many of them have never had role models in their lives to coach them and to mentor them. And the only way you can do that is to learn about them. And so the more I could learn about them, the more precise I could be in helping to coach them and mentor them and helping them choose the right path that fits them so that they could make something of themselves. And so that's where the enormous satisfaction came from, was helping young men and women decide how to chart their, their own course
2: for their lives and become successful. And so after you became genuine, you build that bond, you got to know the names of them. Then you ask them what the ship can do to get better. And there was a story about a sailor and the rusty bolts that I have repeated 20 times since I heard you speak, because I think it's just amazing. Can you share that with us? So when I found out how smart my sailors were, and we offered the SAT
0: exam on board the ship and never had never been done on a small ship before. of my crew took the SAT because through the interviews, I found out that they may want to go to college. So let's help them get in. One of my entry-level seamen scored a 1490 out of 1600, which was almost double what I took when I was (laughs) preparing for the Naval Academy. And it hit me how smart these young men and women are. And they're even smarter today because they have access to information that we never had access to. I couldn't get into the Naval Academy today because the kids out there are so smart. And so when you realize how smart the people are that are working for you, why not unleash that potential? Because who better than the people on the front line doing the work may actually have ideas on how to improve the way you do the work. So when I found out how smart they were, I added three questions to the interview. What do you like most about Benfold? What do you like least? What would you change if you were the captain of the ship? And one sailor came in and says, do you know how many times we've painted this ship in the last 12 months? And I said, no. He said, six times. And every time we paint the ship, it takes us a month to paint it. So every other month we're painting the ship. And then he said, have you ever painted your home? And I said, yes. And he said, it sucks, doesn't it? And I said, (laughs) well, what's your point? We've been painting ships for 244 years. He said, did you ever stop to notice why we have to paint the ship every other month? He said, whenever a new piece of equipment is added topside to the hull of the ship, it's being held in place with nuts, bolts, screws, washers, and fasteners that are made out of ferrous metal that rust in salt water. And when it rusts, it streaks rust stains down the side of the ship. He said, have you ever heard of stainless steel? I'm like, <laughs> stuff that doesn't rust in salt water." Now... I'd been in the Navy 16 years by this point. I walk past it every day because that's the way we've always done it. And when the sailor pointed it out to me, it hit me. I've got sailors hanging from a safety harness on the mast of this ship. And I've got sailors hanging over the side of the ship with a life preserver on. And it's an inherently dangerous task that provides $5 an hour value to us. And so why not get out of the lines of work that we've been doing for forever so that we would have the time of the day to do higher value work? So we scoured the globe looking for the right materials to change this stuff out with, spent about $25,000, changed out everything we could, painted the ship. We did not have to paint the ship again for the next 10 months. And some people from Washington came out to inspect the ship. And they were amazed that it looked like a brand new ship. It looked newer than most new ships coming out of the shipyard. And so they start doing investigations at a Navy-wide level. And the people who procure this equipment in Washington never took into account the man hours that the sailors have to spend maintaining this equipment. Total cost of ownership wasn't part of their criteria. Lowest bid was. Well, if you go for the lowest bid and then I have to spend all these man hours doing $5 an hour work, we're not working together. So now whenever a new piece of equipment is bought, the total cost of ownership has to be addressed so that we're not putting undue burdens on the sailors out on the ships who have better things to be doing like figuring out how to defend ourselves better. So that all that came from a 21-year-old
2: who was free to challenge Why are we painting the ship every other month? That's an incredible story. After I heard you tell that story, I'm no exaggerating. I must have told ten or twenty people. I heard this guy speak, and here's the story of this first class seaman or whatever he was, who basically changed the navy with something that is basically common sense. (laughs) That it's just it's a great story. It really is. Let's move on. So you come onto the Benfold, and you tell the story of how the former captain left, and he didn't leave on their the best circumstances. In fact, there was some disrespect paid to him as he left. That must have, have scared you as like, what am I getting myself into? But you also mentioned that one of the issues was that he was an extremely smart guy who micromanaged. Can you tell me more about that? My predecessor was absolutely brilliant. Nuclear-trained engineer, maybe the best nuclear-trained
0: engineer in the Navy. And when he left... As his departure was announced in the public address system, my crew stood and cheered at the fact that he was leaving. And to my knowledge, it had never happened before in the history of the Navy. And I took a step back and the first thing I thought was, what do I have to do to keep that from happening to me two years from <laughs> What now? am I getting myself into? <laughs> and the second thought that went through my mind was, I may never be liked. It's not part of my job description. Keeping them safe is. So I examined what went wrong. And he was so brilliant, he tried to do everything himself. And not only that, directed how everything was to be done. And so what he created was 310 order takers, people just waiting around to be told what to do. And order takers don't accept accountability for the results. Things go wrong. They say, oh, I'm just doing what I was told to do. And so I realized I needed to go from that top-down command and control to one where I added a four-word question. When a sailor would come and ask me how to do something, my response to them was, what do you think? I think those are the most four powerful words in the English language. Instead of telling them the answer, what do you think? And get them to come up with the answer. And one sailor said, nobody on this ship has ever asked me to think before. I said, well, I'm asking you to think. How would you do this? He says, well, this is what i do. I said, do it. He turned in flawless performance and he lifted burdens off my shoulders. If if I know he's out doing a good job on something, I don't need to go micromanage him. And so that gives me time in the day to go do something more important, like figure out how to defend ourselves better. And so to your micromanager listeners out there, I say it's time to change. And
2: the way to start is those four words, what do you think? Yeah, I think it was Steve Jobs that said, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and tell them what to do. And I've had a few leadership roles in my past and present, and I've had some fantastic bosses, bosses that I would walk through fire for, and other bosses who were nice people, really smart, but just would never allow anyone else to develop themselves. One of the theories is that is a self-confidence thing that it takes a lot more confidence to, to let your people run. I know that I found when I was training as a physician, there were some of my senior physicians who used to say to me, this is how you have to do it. You have to use this exact dose. You have to use this exact medicine. But the real smart ones, the ones that I looked over said, Tony, there's three or four different right ways of doing it and one wrong way. Don't pick the wrong way. So you think that's a self-confidence issue? Absolutely. Okay. And,
0: and I was full of insecurity as well. Like, am I doing the right thing? But I never went wrong when I trusted my sailors. And so I had to get over my own self-confidence. And once they started delivering results, I became more confident as a leader, knowing that this was the, the right way to do things. And the other temptation I would advise your listeners to avoid, sailors would come to me with a solution. And it may not have been the way that I would have done it. But if it could get the results, I would always say, do it your way. Just like you said, just don't pick the wrong solution. There are three or four ways to do it. It doesn't have to be the way that I would have done it, but do it and let's see what happens. And what I found out was sometimes the way I would have told them to do it was better. More times than I care to admit, the way that they chose to do it was better than the way I would have told them how to do it. And so that's the only way people learn is through experience and giving them the opportunity to make a decision and then go back and look at it and say, was it the right decision or is there a better decision than constantly learning and improving?
2: And when you micromanage, you're really lowering the bar, aren't you? As opposed to raising the bar and say, this is what I'm expecting you to do and I trust you to do it. I think that makes people really rise to the occasion, don't you think? So when I worked for the Secretary of Defense, I was the number two assistant
0: and honestly, I was a glorified gopher. My job (laughs) was to push paper and the senior military assistant is a three-star Colin Powell had the job. John Kelly had the job. It's our most important three-star job. And once the general started to trust me, he started delegating more and more of his responsibility to me. He put me in charge of the sec dev security detail, the trip planning team, the communications team. I had 45 people reporting to me in a job that historically had been an individual contributor job. And I never got any feedback from the general as to how I was doing. But then one day his wife came into the office, comes back to my desk and says, I want to thank you for everything you're doing for Paul, because for the first time since he's had this job, he comes home at night happy. So he could have continued to hoard all the power and all the responsibility, but he wasn't going home happy at night. And he found that the more of his responsibility he could delegate to me, it freed him up to do the important three-star work. He's getting more pride and getting better results. And it frees him from the mundane stuff so that he can go home happy at night. So that's my challenge to your listeners is what can you do to lift burdens off your shoulders so that you can go home happy at night because Lord knows we are working hard enough as it is. There's no need to make our jobs even tougher. So how do we lighten our load? And to me, it comes from bringing our people along and training them and delegating to them.
2: And we can do the thousand dollar an hour work. So for the leader out there, whether it's in healthcare or not, who's coming in and we had Stephen M. R. Covey on a few months ago, the author of Speed of Trust. And Stephen spoke a lot about trust. We've had Claude Silver on, Chief Heart Officer of Media. The overwhelming theme of that was trust. The word that we're using right now is servant leadership. Things have really changed over the last 10 years, I would say. Now this is the way, but yet we still have a lack of leaders. I think we have more managers than we do leaders. What advice do you give to that person who said, who's in a leadership position, he or she is scared to death, I've just been promoted and... I have 310 people underneath me. The first thing, how do I establish that trust? What's the first thing that you would say to them?
0: So two months after I took command and the crew didn't trust me, they thought everything I was doing was flavor of the month. It wasn't going to work out. I would revert to the old way of doing things. And then the big day left when we left San Diego en route to the Middle East for our first deployment. And the first seven days of the transit was spent doing a major exercise designed to increase our ability to defend ourselves. We're doing this with two other ships, Harry W. Hill, USS Gary. Admirals embarked on Harry W. Hill. And the exercise was to be over the following Friday afternoon at 5 p.m., at which point we were to enter Pearl Harbor, spend the night in Waikiki. Well, instead of being over at 5 p.m. that Friday afternoon, it was unexpectedly over at 9 a.m. We had achieved all the objectives. We're sitting off the coast of Waikiki, steaming in circles, wasting fuel, wasting taxpayers' money, waiting for five o'clock because that's what the plan called for. And the way we enter port in the Navy is by the date of rank of the senior officer on each ship. The Admiral was on Harry W. Hill. They were to go in first. I was the junior captain in the entire Pacific fleet by date of rank. We were to go in last. So I can see Waikiki through my binoculars. And I'm here thinking, this is stupid. What are we doing out here when we should be there? So I called the captain of the Harry W. Hill on an encrypted satellite voice radio that any sailor off any of the three ships can punch in the button and listen to the conversation. And I said, why don't you ask the admiral if we could go in early? He said, I can't. I've got an engineering problem. I can only fix it at sea. I have to stay out. I called the captain of the next ship. He excoriates me on the radio for sailors on all three ships to hear, you're the junior captain, you're going in last, don't challenge the plan. So I called the Admiral. I'm in my cabin on the ship. I could tell by the gruffness of his voice, he had been listening to these two conversations. My hand literally starts to shake while I'm talking to him on the (laughs) phone. And he said, why should I grant Benfold something I'm not granting the other two ships? I said, well, sir, the exercise is over early. We're steaming in circles, wasting fuel. I said, I've got a piece of broken equipment I can only fix in port. And I said, reason number three, I want to put my crew on the beach early in Waikiki today. Now, when he said that, I was two decks above the operation center where 30 sailors were on watch. When he said permission granted, I could hear cheering through two decks of steel. (laughs) Now, we have four engines on an Arleigh Burke-class destroyer. And our normal configuration is only to steam on one engine because that's our most fuel efficient. You can do up to 18 knots on one engine. And unless it's an emergency, everywhere we go, we're allocated one engine. But you can do 24 knots on two engines and use twice the amount of fuel. You can do 27 knots on three engines, and you can do 31 knots on four engines. When the Admiral said permission granted, I put all four engines online, came up to full power. When an Arleigh Burke class destroyer is at full power, it's a thing of magnificent beauty. It kicks up a rooster tail of water that's two stories high. Wow. Whole ship vibrates from the power. And we scream into Pearl Harbor at full speed, tied up at 10:15, off the ship at 10:45 on our way to Waikiki. Never did save taxpayers one drop of fuel that day. (laughs) Next day, we get underway to continue our transit to the Middle East. And the first sailor comes up for his interview. And he says, you know, Captain, it seems to us, the crew, that you don't care if you ever get promoted again. And I said, where on earth did you get that from? He said, what you did for us yesterday, you had nothing to gain. You did it for us. We want you to know we got your back. And to me is trust is when you have your people's back and they have your back. For us, there was this magical moment, but trust is like a bank account. You got to make deposits each and every day. And after you know a while of making a deposit every day, you have a, a nice sum in your account. And that's what trust is by demonstrating that you're going to do the right thing, that your people can count on you to do the right thing And if they have that sense, they will have your back. And it's the same with your patients. And it's the same with your customers. But you can't order it. You have to earn it. And you need to know your people are watching you every day. And if there's a disconnect between what you say and what you do, then that will erode the trust that you're trying to build up.
2: And it, it really is a difference between good leadership and bad leadership, but also affects the bottom line. So you talk in your book about employee turnover, or in your case, Navy turnover, and how many people re-up. I think if you look at, it, at surveys, it'll tell you that most employees leave because they don't like their manager. It's not about money. And yet, I think when you took over, there was a, a big turnover on the ship. And then you had, I want to say, 100% retention. So
0: the quarter before I took command, our retention rate was 8%, meaning we were retaining 8% of the sailors eligible to re-enlist. And in my last year, our retention rate was almost 100%. We had the highest retention of any ship in the Navy. And when I first got there, retention was our burning issue. And the Navy couldn't generate replacements as fast as we were losing them. And so I had a sailor getting out of the Navy the next day. I call him up to my cabin. And by this time, his mind's already made up. And I said, why are you getting out? He said, Captain, nobody ever asked me to stay. And I started thinking, sometimes we overthink this. Maybe if I just ask them to stay, they'll stay. And so I implemented a program nine months prior to any sailor's contract end date. That sailor would come up to my cabin for another interview And I would ask them, are they thinking about staying in or are they going to get out? And if they're thinking about getting out, what is it that I can do to help you change your mind? And here's where I heard, gee, if you get me this training or this education, I'll stay. If you put me in this different job, I'll stay. My family's on the East Coast. If you transfer me back to the East Coast, I'll re-enlist. And so if you give me nine months to solve a problem, I can generally do it. If you give me a day to solve a personnel problem where they've already decided to get out, I can't do that. So it was about putting in a disciplined process to find out what's on sailors' minds and what would get them to stay and keep them interested. And then delivering. I didn't have a 100% goal. It was one sailor at a time. And then over a period of a year, it's like, wow, we haven't lost anybody. So it's just having a disciplined process. To get people to know you want them to stay and then see what you can do to to keep them. Because what does it take to train a doctor and how much money? Or a nurse? Nurses, most hospitals have a tremendous nursing turnover. Think about how much money is spent on their training and how many opportunities they have. And I've known nurses who will stay at a certain hospital and make less money but stay because they get treated with respect and they know they're appreciated. You know what? Those physicians have a direct impact on that and it doesn't cost a dime. It just costs some self-awareness and giving a nurse a pat on the back or not demeaning him or her. And it's not rocket science, but yet so many people don't do it because they don't have the confidence in themselves to make a difference.
2: It really underlines the importance of communication. As your first sailor said to you, no one ever asked me to stay. And people want to know that they're valued. And if they're valued, they're going to be loyal. We are having a healthcare crisis right now. And that because of the bureaucracy of healthcare right now, there's more doctors and nurses working for hospitals instead of doctors being in private practice. And the thriving hospitals value their doctors and nurses. But there are many hospitals right now where we're saying, listen, I know you have 20 years' experience as a nurse, but if you leave, don't let the door hit you on the way out. I got six graduate nurses. And by the way, they're $10,000 a year cheaper because they're just starting out. And what are we doing? In the end, we're wasting money. And in the end, who suffers? The patient, because now the patient gets a nurse who's got three months' experience instead of 10 years. And so I think that's a really important thing is let's communicate how important everybody is to you. And and that really helps.
0: Well, then that sends a signal to the next nurses who have been there 10 years. Boy, if this is how you get treated after 20, why should I hang around? So everybody watches
2: what happens to everybody else. Communication is a return on investment. So I know we're running out of time. I want to talk about, just get some more great advice from you about communication. I am sure that being in the Navy all those years, you have had many difficult conversations. I want to talk about two types. Can you give us some advice to people who have to have a difficult conversation with their boss? Maybe you don't agree with the boss. Maybe you need to, must be even harder in the Navy. But you want to say to your boss, hey, I disagree with what's going on. I'd like to do it this way. Can you give us some really good advice on how to start that conversation? Well, you have to choose wisely the time when you
0: make that appeal. If your boss is under a lot of pressure and frazzled and is under pressure, that's not the time to do it. I would always do it late in the day, especially with the general and the secretary of defense's office. I never challenged him in the heat of the battle. I never did it publicly. So if you're doing it publicly with other people listening, it's not a good idea. I would always do it one-on-one when it's a calm moment. So I'm a football player. I love football. And in the NFL, when the head coach disagrees with the call by the official, he throws what's called the red flag, which means Mm -hmm. I'd like an NFL instant replay on this. And so you do something that is disarming, that doesn't put them on the spot and on the defensive. I'd say, hey, boss, I'd like to throw the red flag on this decision. And it completely changes their demeanor and their mindset so that they're more open to listen to your ideas. And so I would never CC anybody on an email if I had to do it by an email. It's just one-on-one communication. And I'd say, you know, boss, admiral, here's the deal. I know this is what you want to accomplish, and this is how you told us to do it. But we've looked at this, and if we do it this way, we might be able to deliver better results and accomplish what you're looking for. So when I'm challenging a decision... You don't put the person on the defensive and you don't challenge them in public. And you also give a solution instead of dropping another problem on your boss's doorstep. Provide the solution and then you have a greater chance of being able to do it your way. And so I bet you I won 90% of my NFL instant replay. (laughs) And if I lost, I saluted and I said, you have my 100% support. But uh, the key is the timing and not to put your boss on the defensive and embarrass them in front of others.
2: As I say, it's the name of my book, but as I say, 10 times a day, it's all in the delivery. And so if you went to your boss and said, hey, I disagree with you, that kind of gets their back up, right? And now they're ready for a fight. But I love that. Can I throw a red flag? It's almost kind of funny and makes light of everything. And then you can have a nice conversation. Their
0: response would be to laugh and shake their head. (laughs) That's better than to get their claws out and want to dig into you. Laugh, shake your head.
2: Okay, Abershoff, what do you want? I love that. I think I'm going to steal that from you. And I think a lot of people out there are going to steal that also. And then finally, you've had to have difficult conversations in your life that you've run with either your sailors or et cetera. I always finish the podcast with the same question What is the most difficult conversation you have ever had to have? Or what type of conversation do you think is the most difficult that you've had to learn to navigate? So the problem in organizations, is
0: not everybody is going to get with the program. I call them cave dwellers, citizens against virtually everything. (laughs) I love that. And no matter what you're for, they're against. And I bet you 1% or 2% of the crew on Benfold were, they were disgusted. They just couldn't wait to get out. They couldn't wait for their contract to be up. And nothing I was ever going to do or try to connect with them was going to make any difference. But they got a different interview with me. It was a cave dweller interview. and you never let this interview become emotional or confrontational. William Perry called it iron logic. Go into the conversation with 20 facts that the person can't refute of how their performance didn't compare favorably to the rest of the sailors. And you get them to admit that they're not performing. And you can't do that with generalizations. You have to have cold, hard facts So I would get the person to admit that they're not performing at the same level as their shipmates. And then the follow-up question is, why? And honestly, here's where my education came in. Some sailors chose to share with me personal issues, like they're in debt or marital issues or kids on drugs. We got family members with COVID, and you're homeschooling your children. I mean, these are problems that we've never had to face before But our people are now facing, so they become impediments that we have to deal with. And so if you understand it, then you can help them. And if a sailor chose to share with me a personal issue, you know what? I'm a compassionate and humane person. I'll help you if I can. I'll give you some time to address it. And hopefully, you'll be back in a couple of months ready to go. If a person didn't have the training, I'll get you the training. But if a cave dweller was a cave dweller because they just didn't want to be there, I put them on a six-month program. They got to come see me once a month for six months. And if they made no effort to improve, I separated them from the Navy. And I had to get rid of five sailors this way. I hated every time. And I got no sleep the night before getting rid of the first sailor. And I come to work and I said, you know what? I laid a line in the sand. I've got to separate the sailor. So I did And then the most amazing thing happened. The 98% of the sailors who did care started stopping me in the passageway and said, what took you so long? Mm -hmm. We owe it to the good performers not to tolerate disruption from one or 2%. And that's what a critical conversation is about. Leadership isn't a paycheck. It's about having those critical conversations. And getting to understand why people aren't performing as expected, help them if they're having a personal problem, but also tell them what will happen if they choose not to get with the program because we owe it to our patients, we owe it to our customers, we owe it to the rest of our staff not to tolerate disruption from
2: a a few malcontents. Successful people know how to communicate. And I think that's the bottom line. And that's why I work so hard to, to help people learn to do that. That's why I have this podcast. That's why I had you on because you're a master communicator and a leader. And I want to thank you so much. Before we leave, how's COVID affecting you the GLS worldwide? I mean, you're, I used to do a lot of speaking and, and that came to a halt. And so must, what are you doing nowadays to keep busy? So I'm doing virtual keynotes. Mm-hmm. I'm doing probably
0: five or six a month. And my business partner, Stacey Cunningham, three years ago developed a virtual leadership development program. And so in times of COVID, people were looking for ways to break up the endless Zoom calls. So we've got this 26-lesson virtual program. Each lesson takes about 15 minutes. And so we're getting pretty fantastic results with that. But I haven't flown in an airplane since March 14th. And I normally fly probably 200,000 miles a year. And the first six weeks, I loved it. I'm here thinking, boy, this pandemic is great. I'm on vacation. But I was bored for the next two months until I started doing the virtual keynotes. And so you adapt and realize somebody always has it worse than you. So I'm very fortunate. and But you make the most of it. And I, I set up a studio in my basement where I do my virtual keynotes from and continue pushing the consulting side and also taking some time for myself and and just thinking about what the future holds and how I'm going to position myself and how I can be of value to
2: clients because of the challenges they're facing with COVID as well. Yeah, I've done some virtual keynotes too. I love to speak in front of a crowd because you get that feedback, right? So you can be on that stage and you're speaking and you get a lot of verbal language that confirms with the head nods Hard to do that on virtual because you have no idea if anyone's sleeping or not. (laughs)
0: And and not that people care, but in a virtual setting, you have to stand still in one place in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. And my first keynote, for some reason, I dressed up and put my hard-soled shoes on, even though you can only see from the waist up. (laughs) And I'm standing on the same hard floor in the exact same spot for an hour and a half. And when I was done, my legs and feet were shot like they've never (laughs) been before. And I had to sit down for like four hours until I recovered. But now I wear sneakers whenever I'm doing a virtual keynote, but the audience has
2: probably never think about it, but it's tough standing in the same place for an hour and a half. It sure is. And yeah, just last week I gave one and you have no idea whether anybody's still out there, right? You're talking away and you're giving this, and it's not until maybe you get an email or afterwards where the moderator comes up and says that was a great lecture or whatever, but I can't wait to get back to in-person stuff. I got my first COVID vaccine. We're taping it one week before Christmas. I got my first vaccine two days ago and as a healthcare worker, and it looks like, God willing, we're going to be getting this out to everybody in the next five or six months and maybe we can get back to normal. That's the hope. So thanks, Mike. I can't thank you enough. I think this is going to be an awesome episode for the audience. My audience is really lucky that you're out there and that you did this what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? We'll put it in the show notes. So if you're driving, don't write this down, but what's the best way to get in touch? M. Abrashoff at apgleadership.com. Great, and we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple or your favorite podcast platform. If you want to learn more about what we do at The Orsini Way, you can reach me at theorsiniway.com. Thanks again, Mike. Appreciate it and have a wonderful holiday. You got it, Doc. Take care.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.